0: listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. It's good to see y'all come back after Easter. I'm glad you're here. Um, and we're gonna be as we have been in Matthew chapter nine. So go ahead and if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew nine. If you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen behind you. We are working our way through this, this gospel, the first gospel of the New Testament. And so we are... Continuing this study, we've called it All Authority. Uh, people love a reboot. Hollywood loves a reboot, right? A remake. There's something about, you know, taking, we, we can take the original, which is a classic, and now we have CGI, so we can make it better, right? And so, and, and remakes and reboots uh, inevitably are never as good as the original, okay? Reboots is how we have Ben Affleck as Batman, that's what happens when you reboot, okay? Train wreck, right? Reboots is how you take Patrick Swayze, his two best movies, not Dirty Dancing, ladies. Red Dawn and Point Break, okay? And, and, and you think you can do better than that. No, you cannot improve on Patrick Swayze. You just cannot. Uh, reboots is how you have uh, Han not shooting first, That's for a few of you in the room, only like three. Google that and you'll find out what that means, right? There you go. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate that. This is what happens because the original is always, always, always better than the reboot, except for, I'll give you one, Christian Bale, Batman. Okay, I'll give you that one. Yes, Christian Bale. Okay, that's the only one. The original is always better. It just is. And it's not because I'm older and I'm like, yeah, the good old days. No, it just is. It's better. And and really, this is the struggle that the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they're they're like, the original is better. The law is the best. Moses is the best. We love the law. We love the law. And on comes the stage, here's Jesus. Basically saying, I'm the reboot. I'm the new version. I fulfill the law. The law is about me. I complete the law. And I'm giving you something new. And they don't want it because they want the original because the original is better. And so what we're gonna see today, what Matthew is gonna do for us is he's gonna show us why the reboot is better than the original, right? Which is rare. Again, Coke tried this, right? Remember New Coke? Remember New Coke? It was not so good, right? Because the original is always better except Christian Bale and the Lord Jesus, okay? Only two of them. That's the only two. And, and what Matthew's gonna do is show why And so what I wanna do today is show you why and what that means for us. We are in the section of the Gospel of Matthew where there's 10 miracles kind of put together. And the point is that Matthew is trying to show you that Jesus backs up what he says. He's made all sorts of claims. And so now he's putting these miracles to show this is where his authority gets. he gets. This is why he can say these things. And intertwined with all these miracles is these little sections of teaching. And Clint unpacked one and we got another one today. Uh, where he's gonna give a principle in this section and then he's gonna give these miracles that are gonna kind of back up that principle. So what we're gonna see is this principle where Jesus is basically saying the reboot is better than the original and then we're gonna have four miracles to show why and that's what I wanna look at today in Matthew chapter nine, all right? So we're gonna jump in. We got a lot of text to cover and not a lot of time so let me just jump right into the principle that he's gonna teach and then we'll look at the miracles. Verse 14, then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of untruck cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilt, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now, If you're not familiar with the Bible, this is like, what in the world does this have to do with anything, all right? And I get it, very cultural here. So let me kind of unpack it. Here's here's what's going on, okay? So John the Baptist is in jail, and his followers come up to Jesus and say, we have a question. And I think it's a legitimate question. I don't think there's any anger. I don't think there's any spite. Maybe I'm wrong, but they ask, why is it that the Pharisees, they fast twice a week, even though it's only required once a year, but they fast twice a week. Why is it that we fast And you and your boys, all y'all do is eat. I mean, y'all could use some fasting, y'all. Because remember what happened last week. We looked on Easter. What's the context? Jesus is at the house of Matthew. Matthew throws a big old party and they're just eating and reclining and eating and laughing and celebrating. And so this is the context in which they're like, why do we fast? Why do the Pharisees fast? And why don't y'all fast? All right, it's a legitimate question. And remember what fasting is. It's a, it's a not eating for a specific time for a reason and it's a sign of piety for them. It's a sign of mourning and gloom and, and brokenness, right? It, it's, it, it's, it's a sign of we need desperately something, right? And so it's, it's a sign of I need, I need God, I need, I need God. And what Jesus is saying is, and he, and he goes to the next thing, He says, Why do you and your disciples fast? "We, We don't fast. He answers. He said, Can the wedding guests mourn? He says, Okay, fasting, if the point of fasting is to draw near to God and to long for God, hello, I'm here. Right, And he uses this image of, of a wedding feast. So for us, it's like a Saturday afternoon. We go outside, sit in some white chairs, then we go to a party and, and we eat for two or three hours. Right, For them, it was a week and it was this joyous celebration. And he says, nobody, when they go, if they're a friend of the bridegroom and this image of the bridegroom, Jesus is identifying himself as the bridegroom. John the Baptist's disciples, they know he's talking about him because John the Baptist himself in John chapter three said this, they're asking him, are you the Christ? And he says, no, I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before the Christ. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, that's Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom, that's me. I stand and, and, and hear him and I rejoice, right? So I'm the friend of the bridegroom and I'm rejoicing. Why? Because he is greater than I am. And so this image of a wedding and being at the wedding and, and you get this, no one goes to the reception and you got chicken fingers and some kind of like a fishy thing over there. You're like, I don't know, but I might try it. And you got you cake and you got all, no one goes, no, it's a time to mourn. I'm sad. No one does that. Not now, not then. Why? Because you're with the bridegroom. And Jesus' point is, I'm here. They don't need to draw near to me. They sleep outside under the stars next to me. I'm walking with them. I'm here. Now, there will be a time, he says, when when it's taken away, right? When, When the bridegroom is taken away. And this is an allusion to what? To the cross. He said, then they'll fast. But right now is not the time. And the New Testament, you read the book of Acts, the early church was fasting. And it's it's fasting, but it's for a different reason. We've already tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So now it's, I'm denying myself because I hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so I'm gonna not let my appetites be my master for a season. And I'm just gonna feast on God and draw near to God who is indwelling me. But his point, don't miss his point. What they're saying is basically this. Why don't you do things the old way, Jesus? The original's better Why don't you do things the old way? He says, I can't. It's different, it's new. It's gonna be the new covenant in my blood. And so he's gonna give them two illustrations as why. And they're very cultural and they're very weird, but let me unpack them to you. Okay, verse 16. He says, no one puts a piece of unstruck cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Okay, so if you grew up in the 70s, 80s, even 60s, you remember, if you get some holes in your knees, remember you get those pants, you get your jeans, and you come home and you fell and you had a hole in your knee. Your mom's like, "Oh!" But what'd she do? She run down herself to the Kmart. She would get those little blue patches. She ironed them things on. Remember that? And so now you had like a real dark blue with a light blue, you know, and you, because that you you put all, you patched it. You, see, that's how you know. Now you buy your jeans with holes in them already, and that's why you pay for. So we used to have to earn our holes in our jeans back in the day, right? But. But the idea is this, back then if you got a tear in your robe or a tear in your shirt or whatever it is, you wouldn't take a brand new piece of cloth and patch it on that old, because then when you put it in the wash, that, that new piece would shrink and it would tear away at the tear and make the tear worse. You just didn't do it, okay? So it, that's, the, that's the idea, it's, it's, it'll, it'll make it worse. And then he gives another illustration, the whole wine issue. He said, if it, he said you don't put new wine in old wineskins, right? It's, if, if it does, it's going to burst. And here's what's going on there. We, again, very foreign for us, because you get your wine, where? In a bottle. Or if you're a redneck, in a box. <laughs> it's like the juice box for rednecks. I don't know. but Okay. I'm not a wine guy. I don't know. So I'm just assuming that's the case. But But back then, wine, you would put Brand new wine, freshly squeezed grapes in a new wineskin. Why? Because what would happen is as, that, as those grapes ferment, the elasticity of the, of the new wineskin would stretch with it, right? And once it was stretched out and then it would get old and brittle, you can't take that old and brittle one and then put new wine in it again because it's going to stretch it again. I mean, grow again when it ferments and it's going to bust it out. He says, no, you put new wine, new wineskins, old wine, old wineskins, and here's his point. They want Jesus to show up, they love the old, they just wanted to put a little patch on the law. Just, just do a little bit of work over here. Just fit our, our mold. He says, no, 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 That'll, that, I can't do that. It, I, you can't contain what I'm gonna do. I fulfill the law and that I keep it perfectly. It's all about me, and I am going to show you that this whole law was pointing to this new covenant that is poured out in my blood. That's what that whole thing was about. I'm better than that I am the reboot I am better than the original right the original can't contain what I bring to the table and now Matthew's going to give us four miracles to show us how how is Jesus better than the old covenant what can Jesus do that the old covenant could never do and he's going to give us four miracles to highlight let me let me work through them they're familiar to many of us if you are familiar with the scriptures so verse 18 While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him, touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. So there's a lot there. Again, and and Matthew, like typically Matthew summarizes he doesn't give us all the details. If you put the, the Gospel of Mark and Luke on, on top of Matthew, here's what, here's what happens. So a man named Jairus, who's the head of a synagogue, comes to Jesus and said, my 12-year-old daughter is about to die. And Jesus says, okay, I'm gonna go, let's go. And so they start heading that way and they get stopped by this woman who has a hemorrhage. And you can imagine Jairus is like, come on, we gotta hurry, we gotta hurry, we gotta hurry, and Jesus takes his time, he heals this person, and then they start again and then someone comes and says, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And Jesus says, don't worry, only believe. And then they go. Matthew kind of summarizes that into one statement, but that's, that's kind of the big picture of what's going on. So Jesus is headed to Jairus' house, right, for this little girl, this little 12-year-old girl. And then Matthew zooms in, behold, a woman who had suffered uh, from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. So here's a woman, for 12 years, she has suffered some sort of, ailment that's causing her to bleed internally, vaginally, we don't even know specifically. But here's what we do know. She spent all her money trying to get fixed and, she, and it made things worse. Doctors couldn't do anything. Just made matters worse. And because of this ailment, this woman would have been a wreck. She was ceremonially unclean for her entire life. Never go to temple, never go to anyone's house. No one wants to associate with her. No one's gonna marry her. Her life is, is just hard. It's, it's a it's a difficult existence where no one wants to do with me because they can't. If they associate with me, then they can't go to temple. I can't go to temple, and so she doesn't like. Most people come up to Jesus. Jesus, heal me. She's like, I'm going to sneak attack this thing because she's heard that Jesus touches people and they're healed. So she's probably rationalizing, well, if if they touch, he touches, then they healed. Maybe if I touch him, then I'll get healed. And so she kind of sneaks in from the back, right? And it says she touched the fringe. Of his garment, very interesting. This is the Greek word kraspedon and it references uh, one of the tassels that a Jewish man would wear on his outer robe. That this, there's four tassels on the on the corners of this robe, and this was in the book of Numbers. Men were supposed to wear these things to symbolize their, their set apartness, their purity towards the law. Right, and it looks something like this. And so you've seen these, uh, you know, in pictures. This is something similar, probably, to what it was. See those little strings that are hanging. These four tassels were symbolic of Jesus' ritual purity, of his commitment to follow God, to love God, to keep the commandments. And so the irony is: here is a woman who is ceremonially, ritually unclean, and she touches the item on Jesus that represents his purity and his cleanliness. Right? And as soon as she does, she's healed miraculously. And, and Matthew kind of skips all the details, but what Mark and Luke tell us is that Jesus is walking, there's a crowd, he feels the power of the Spirit leave and, and, and move, and he stops. He's like, Who, who touched me? And it's like, you know, St. Patrick's Day, like, you know, parade. You can't even move. And Peter's like, are you kidding me? I touched you, he touched you. I don't know who touched you. What do you mean, who touched you? Everyone's touching you, Jesus. No, 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 someone touched me. And she hears it and she runs up to the Lord Jesus and she gets on her knees and he looks at her and he says, take heart, my daughter. Family, language, don't be afraid. Take heart, be courageous. It's your faith. Your faith that made you well. And instantly she was well. And here's what's interesting. I was thinking about this morning. We're like, ah, you know, if this woman lived in 2022, she probably would be able to go to a doctor. Whatever her ailment was, it would probably be surgery or whatever. She probably could have been healed. So we, we, you know, we can, ah, it's just a blood issue, you know, whatever. Think about Jesus healing a disease that couldn't be healed by any doctors. Think about Jesus heals ALS, right? That's That's a disease that no one can heal. That's the miraculousness of this. Jesus takes something that no one else can do and he heals her. Right? And then they continue on, and so they come to the ruler's house, to Jairus's house, and saw the flute players and the crowd making commotion. And that day, when someone died, they would hire professional mourners. They would, they would be outside playing, you know, psalm or music, and they'd be all mourning. Oh, oh, and everyone, so everyone knew that there was a death. And Jesus says, "Go away, you guys are early. <laughs> right? she's not dead; she's asleep." And they start mocking him because she is dead. When Jesus says she's asleep, he's not like mistaken here, okay? Her brain, no longer functioning. Her heart stopped. Her, her blood, no longer pumping. She is not in a coma. She's not, you know, Miracle Max, mostly dead. She is dead. She's dead. And when Jesus uses the term sleep, it's like he uses with Lazarus. Remember Lazarus, they say Lazarus is sick. And so they're like, okay, we'll go. But he waits four days. And they're like, he tells his disciples, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they're like, oh, if he's asleep, I'll wake up. He's like, no, 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 guys, He's dead. She's dead, but he knows what he's going to do. And that's the metaphor that death is for the believer is it's sleep, right? But so he goes in and, and he puts the crowd out and it's a strong Greek word. He evicts the crowd. Get out of here. And he goes in and he takes the little girl by her hand and Mark says, he says to her, Talitha kum. Little girl, arise. And immediately her heart starts bumping. Her lungs fill with oxygen. Her brain starts functioning And she gets up, which is like, whoa. I mean, we don't even have time to think about the implications of that, right? Both amazing miracles. But here's what I want us to see. Remember the context. Why these miracles? Why here? Why is Matthew here? Remember, Jesus is better. He's better than the law. Why? Two things out of these two miracles that that I think Matthew is trying to highlight us. The the first is the obvious one, right? Jesus is better because he makes dead people alive, right? Right? He brings people from death to life. And not just physically, although that is true, ultimately, spiritually. He takes people who are spiritually dead and makes them alive. The law could not do that, y'all. All the law could do was tell you, you're dead. That's all it could do. You've broken the commandments, you're dead. That's all it could do. Jesus takes dead and he makes life. Let me just read Ephesians 2 to you. Let me read it over you, remind you, encourage you. This is, this is our story, right? It's not gonna be on the screen, just listen to the words of Paul. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the disobedience, sons of disobedience. That's what you were. Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, like, and were by nature, i.e. born this way, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Only Jesus can make you alive, can seat you with him in the heavenly, can promise you, not just life abundant, which is what he promises. I offer life, life abundant. He promises that, but he also promises what? Eternal life, and, and, and I think there's a misconception for us in the church so often. We think eternal life is, yay, one day I'll float up in my little white robe with my harp and we'll just play songs in heaven. Yay, that's we great, right? That's not the promise of the Bible. That's not the hope. Of the Do you realize that's not our hope? Our hope is not, yay, we get to go be spirit beings on the clouds. Our hope is resurrection. That is the hope of, of the gospel, that one day you will die, you will be put in the ground, your body will be turned to dust, and when Jesus returns, he will take your soul, which is in heaven with him for a time, and he will reunite it with a brand new stinking six foot two body. <laughs> and you will forever Be in a perfect, glorified, like Jesus body forever. Just like the Garden of Eden, right? And in new heavens and a new earth. So don't think that your hope is I get to go to heaven. Your hope is resurrection. And why is it? Because he is the resurrection and the life. That's why. That's what Jesus does that the law cannot do. Which is why the reboot is better than the original. That's the first thing. There's another thing here though. He gives value to the devalued. And I've told you before, in that culture especially, women were devalued, they were less than. And so today, you know, we have, you know, gender reveal parties, it's a boy, it's a girl, and everyone's happy no matter what, right? Okay, Uh, back then, they didn't have gender reveal parties, we didn't have them 10 years ago either, but that's another story. Uh, But back then, it's a girl was like, huh, because we need a boy to perpetuate the family name. We need a boy to take care of us when we're older. We need a boy to take over the family business and do all these things. We need a boy. So even the little girl back then was seen as, ah, uh, fine, but she's gonna go off and marry somebody. We're gonna send her out one day. We need a boy, right? And so what you see here is Jesus takes his time and goes out of his way because the guy says, my little girl, and he says, I'm there. That's, that's rare. And then on the way, he stops for a woman that no one else wants to deal with and he looks at her in the eyes, and he says, my daughter. Why, because Jesus gives value to the devalued. That's what he does. He touches them, he looks at them, he speaks to them, he cares for them. And see, that's the new covenant. The old covenant is, you can only get so close. If you're a woman, you can only get so close. If you're a Gentile, you can only get so close. If you're not a Levite, you can only get so close. If you're not the high priest, you can only get so close. And what Jesus says is the little girl, the, the woman no one wants to deal with, the Gentile, that whatever race, that whatever your background, come on. You have access to the Father through the Son. Come on. Jesus is better. He's better. And this is why Galatians says, there is neither Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And he's not talking about, by the way, there's no genders, there's no this. That's not what he's talking about there. He's talking about value. Of course there's male and female. Of course there's distinction. He says it throughout the Bible. What he's talking about there is in the, in the body, the, the, the infant is, is as valuable in God's eyes as the pastor. They're one. Is there different roles? Of course. But there's there's not more value or less value. Why? Because we are in Christ. The blood of Christ was shed for all of us. Our sins removed on Christ, all of us. And so that's the point. Jesus is better. He's better, right? That's why the reboot is better. And let me give you just a couple of applicational thoughts just from those two. Number one, if you're you're God, if you have a, a view of God like this, that he is great, you're gonna be mocked, just like Jesus was mocked. Jesus is mocked by disciples. Who touched you? Are you kidding me? Jesus is mocked by the professional mourners <laughs> laughing at him. It shows how sincere they were in their mourning, right? They go from mourning to laughing in a second. But if you have a God who can make dead people alive, I think the encouragement for us is this: then never give up hope on fill in the blank. If you're like, I'm praying for my, my son, and I've been praying for 20 years, and people are like, just the lost cause, he's gone. Or you're like, you're investing your time and your effort and, you're, and people are like, why do you keep doing that? Why do you keep going to that, to that neighborhood? Why do you keep helping that family? Why do you keep going over here? And you're like, I've been doing this five years. I've been, do, I've been praying for my husband, my wife for 16 years and they're coming to faith. And I just, I don't know if I'm making a difference. I don't know. Let me tell you this. If God can make the dead alive, then he can do anything. I mean, this is why we pray. I know it's hard. We pray for Vladimir Putin, who is wicked, evil, God can make him alive. Will he? I don't know, but God can make him alive. If he can make the apostle Paul, who is basically doing the same thing on a smaller scale, if he can make the apostle Paul alive, then he can make Vladimir Putin alive. That is the God we serve. And you need to have that kind of view. He can take a dead 12-year-old and make her alive. What can't he do, all right? So it's an encouragement for us. That's our God. Here's another one. Is in the kingdom... There's no less thans. There's no just, I'm just a. Because some of you, I know, you, you gather and you're like, I'm just, I'm just a 14-year-old girl. I'm just a, a divorcee. I'm just a fill in the blank. This is my past. This is my family. This is my gifts. I'm not, I'm not anything. I'm a, Don't have, make a lot of money. Don't have a lot of impact. And what you need to remember is who in this story catches the eye of Jesus? It's the insignificant. It's the invisible. Isn't that interesting how that works? There is no invisible with God. There is no ju- I'm just uh, with God. And some of you need to be reminded of that because you, maybe it's a train wreck of a life or maybe just, you're just not that gifted, you're not that special, you're not that whatever in your mind. You need to know God sees, God knows and there is no insignificant in his kingdom. He goes after the one and leaves the 99. It's just a good reminder for us but the reboot is better. Why? Because Jesus makes dead the, uh, dead and alive and Jesus gives value to the devalued. Two more. Next, next parable. I mean, next story, miracle. And he passed on from there, and I love this. Two blind men followed behind him. How? <laughs> Have you thought about that? They followed behind him. Two of them. And they're crying aloud, and the tense of the verb in the Greek is they're continually doing this. And they're saying loud, out loud, son of David, have mercy. And it's not that they went on Ancestry.com and found out, oh, Jesus is from the, you know, son of David is a messianic title. What they're saying is, we believe you to be Messiah, the son of David. And so picture this, Jesus has got this crowd of people and, he, and these, these guys are wandering around, son of David. Oh, they're over there, Marco, Polo, you know, they're kind of following along. Son of David. And you know Jesus hears them, y'all. He's got to hear them because Matthew heard them and he wrote it down. So you know Jesus hears them. So why doesn't he just stop and give these poor guys a break? I mean, they're just wandering around the desert here. And he finally gets them into the house. They come to the house. Jesus loves them perseverance, y'all, all right? And so he gets them in the house and he presses them even further. He says, do you believe? They're like, are you pointing at us? We can't see you. Yes, I'm pointing to you. Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they say, yes, we do. Well, you know why I think Jesus makes them persevere? Because nothing builds faith like waiting. And that is a horrible lesson to learn. But it is a lesson that we all need. And Jesus loves eliciting faith out of people. Daughter, your faith has made you well. What does He tell the Jairus? If you read Matthew and Mark's Luke, I mean Mark and Luke's, He says, "Do not fear, only believe." Right? What does He say to them? Do you believe that I am the Messiah? You believe I, the Messiah, can do this? We do. Then He says, "Okay." And he touches their eyes according to your faith. You believed, and so their eyes were open. And I want you to think about this. He's touching their eyes, probably both at the same time, right? And we don't know if they were born blind. We don't know if they went blind at six years old. We don't know anything. We know they're blind. They cannot see. What is the first thing they see when Jesus removes his hands, his face, smiling at him? How awesome is that? I'm reminded of a a story about Corey ten Boom. I don't know if you know. I'm not Corey ten Boom. Excuse me. Fanny Crosby, who was a hymn writer in the uh, last century. She wrote 8,000 songs. 8,000. I don't know how many a day she was writing, but she wrote 8,000. And she was blind from six weeks old. And a well-meaning pastor came up to her one time and said, "Miss Crosby, I think it's a great pity that the master, when he showered you with so many gifts, did not give you sight. Right? Because, I mean, you're so gifted. Imagine what you could have done if you could see Fanny. And she replied, do you know, sir, that if at birth I had been able to make one petition to my creator, it would have been that I would be born blind. And he said, why? She said, because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. What a perspective. And that's what these guys, they, they have their the scales, so to speak, removed, and they can see. And then again, low-hanging fruit here. What does Jesus do that the law cannot do? He makes the blind see. He opens the eyes of the blind. We sing it. Twas blind, but now... I see, right? He, it's a it's metaphor in the scripture constantly for spiritual blindness, which is there's a lack of spiritual perception or understanding. It's just, this is why in the gospels, you constantly see they had eyes, they get eyes, but they could not see that ears. They could not hear. They're blind. And there's many reasons why people are spiritually blind. Many reasons. Pride. There's, this, there's a miracle in John nine where Jesus heals another blind guy. And the Pharisee's like, we're not blind too, are we? He's like, you're blind because you don't admit you're sinners. Your pride keeps you from knowing that you're really blind. If you were, if you understood that you were really blind, then you would actually see. But since you think you see, you don't. So you don't really see. You're blind. So pride will keep us from seeing. Satan keeps you from seeing. The God of this world, Paul says, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Satan keeps people blind. Sometimes people don't want to see. Read Romans one. That which was evident, was clear, was clearly made to everybody. There is a God, he is a creator. People don't wanna admit that. They worship the creation rather than the creator. They deny truth that is very clear. And so God says, okay, I'm I'm gonna let you believe a lie. I'm actually gonna give you over to do all sorts of wicked things. And if you wanna know why we're, we're running headlong into craziness in our country, it's because people have denied a simple, obvious truth. There is a God and he is creator. And when you deny that, he says, okay, I'm gonna give you over to what your heart wants. So there's a a spiritual blindness that we all suffer for. And when you come to faith, what Jesus does is he removes the blinders. He gives you his spirit. And 1 Corinthians 3 says that the natural man, the the non-spirit filled person does not accept the things of God. They're spiritually appraised. But it's amazing when someone comes to faith in Jesus, they could be opposed and believing all this crazy stuff. And as soon as they come to faith, it's amazing how when their eyes are open, they're like, oh, I see. I understand. And it changes their view on money and sex and their future and work and their family. Why? Because now you have the mind of, you see like God sees, not perfectly, but you see sin and it's still tempting, but now I, it's, I hate it even though I still do it. And I wanna live for something that's greater than just now. I don't wanna just have a bunch of cars in my garage and then I'm dead. I wanna actually store up treasure in heaven and I wanna treat people like Jesus treated me. And it's amazing how God does that. Right? And it's because he's taken the blinders off. And that's some of your story. Some of you, you know, 10 years ago, you were opposed, 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 and now you're preaching the gospel and you're like, what happened? You were blind and now you see. That's what happened. That's what happened. And here's the application for this, I think, right out of the text, is when God opens your eyes, don't do what these dudes did. What do they do? He says, he gives them one rule. All right, you can see now. Congratulations. Here's the one thing, don't tell anybody. So they go and tell everybody. And and it's a little humorous because you're like, okay, of course they were blind now, see. But here's the thing, this is what we do. God opens our minds and opens our eyes. This is good, this is bad. Don't do this, do this, this is for your good. And what do we do? We hear it, amen. And by the time we got to the car, we're like, we just blow God off, constantly. How How often do I do that? If I do it, I know you do it. And the point is this, God did not open your eyes so you could go do your own thing. You were wandering around in the dark. He opened your eyes so you can see the straight and narrow and you could follow him. And when you don't, when you have your eyes open and you start wandering around again, it's like you're going back to blindness. That's what Peter says. And this would be a great, let me just encourage you, if, if you're like, I need a new passage to memorize, this would be a great passage for some of you to memorize. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9. Peter says this, okay, supplement with your faith, add to your faith, faith is the foundation, right? He says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, virtue, which is goodness. And with your virtue, knowledge, and knowledge, self-control. Self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness, godliness. Godliness, brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Here's why, if these qualities that you're building on your faith with are growing, they're increasing, they're making you effective. Not ineffective, they're making you effective. They're making you fruitful, not unfruitful. But if you lack them, what does he say? You're, you're so nearsighted, you're blind, having forgotten that you were cleansed. For, you're wandering around. If you're not pursuing purity and goodness and virtue and self-control and love and brotherly affection, then you're just wandering around like a blind dude. Son of David! Have mercy on me. I already did. I opened your eyes. What are you wandering around for? That's what he's saying. So the application is, if God has opened your eyes, follow him, believe him, trust him. Do what he says. Because it's for your good, right? It's for your good. So the reboot is better. Why? He makes dead people alive. He gives value to the devalue. He opens the eyes of the blind. And there's one more. One more. Real quick. Verse 32. Verse 32. They were, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to them. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees say, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Matthew is so short about this. He's like, yeah, I just happened, boom, gone. I mean, it's like so matter of fact. So we have a person who is mute. The word kofos actually means mute or deaf or both. So we don't know if he's mute, deaf. Or both, but we know he's at least one, uh, and we know the reason why is because he's oppressed or he's indwelt by a demon, right? He's, he's in, indwelt by a demon, and um it's causing this issue, and Jesus, he casts it out. But here's what I want to zoom on real quick. Y'all, demons are real. I mean, some of you are like, yeah, I know, but I don't think we act like demons and Satan are real. And their one mission is to oppose the people and the plan of God. That's what they do. And this is not some far side comic or some sci-fi movie. They are real. And one of the craftiest tactics of the enemy is to convince you that it doesn't matter or that it's not real, but it is. And Paul tells us that your battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against Putin and Russia. It's not against... Anything, it is against the rulers and the powers and the authorities in the spiritual realm. You are fighting a battle right now against the the, the enemies of God, the spiritual warfare. There's a lot of misconceptions and stuff that could be said uh, about demonology and angels. Here's, here's one that's very common. Uh, a Christian can never be indwelt by a demon because the spirit of Christ is not gonna share a person with Spirit of the enemy. Now they can't be indwelt, but they can be impacted and they can be attacked and they can be influenced by demons. And a lot of it is because we open ourselves up to it. Okay, when you, understand this, if you're a Christian, just because you can't ever lose your salvation and just because you have the spirit of Christ in you doesn't mean that you cannot be opposed and even attacked and influenced by demons. And when you open yourself up to it with demonic things, you will see attack. You're like, well, I don't, I'm not doing any demonic things. If you are engaged in any kind of pornography, that is demonic and you are opening yourself up to demon attacks, I'm just telling you. If you were engaged in some, in and, and, and the drug culture that is so prevalent now, it is a demonic culture. And you're setting yourself up and you're opening yourself up. Music, and I'm not the old, oh, you can't. Like, I love music, okay. But there is music that is demonic and dark and wicked and it is opening you, yourselves up. If you fill your mind with this garbage, with this, the language and the violence and the, the, the comments about women and all these things and you think, well, I just like the beat. Come on, dude, go listen to Abba. I mean, Abba's got great beat, right? Come on, don't give me I like the beat. You're opening yourself up for a spiritual attack. I'm just telling you, right? You just are. We are not called to play with that Eastern mysticism and all this kind of, you know, spiritualism that's out there, empty your minds and whatever. No, it's garbage, it is, it's demonic. And remember, Satan comes as an angel of light. You gotta understand that. And I'm not seeing a demon under every rock and I'm not saying that, but I am saying this is real. And you're like, well, I've never seen one. You go outside of our country, you go to India, you go to some of these places where ancestry worship, where it's more open pagan stuff, you will see it more prevalently, I promise you. We kind of have this Western view and so I think Satan is more subtle with us, but it is blatant when you go to places like they're living. And I'm just saying, you're not called to play with it, you are called to fight it. And you fight it with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and the prayer of the saints. You fight it with your helmet of salvation, guarding your, thought, your mind and your thoughts. You have the breastplate of righteousness covering your vital organs, the righteousness of Christ. Your, your belt is the, is, the, is the truth of the gospel. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This is how we go to war with the weapons of our warfare, which are spiritual in nature. Right? And that's what we're called to do. But all that to say this, what, is, what does this miracle teach us? How does it affirm Jesus is better? Because Jesus defeated the powers of evil. Didn't he? Satan, death, sin, our, th- our big three, done. Colossians 2, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them. How? Triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus goes into the ground, pays for sin, comes out of the ground, being declared the son of God in power. Satan's done Game is over. Now it's gotta be played out, but the game is over. It is finished. He is defeated. And here's where, I want, here's where I want to land with this, okay? It's interesting, the response of the Pharisees. They say he cast out demons by the prince of demons, which he in other gospels goes into, like that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Why would Satan cast out Satan? But here's what's interesting. Think of the contrast. People see the power of God on display. What do they do? They mock, they lie, they slander. Interesting, what do demons do when they see the power of God on display, when the Son of Man shows up? They cower in fear. They beg him to cast them into the pigs and not torment them before the time. When, when the people of God hear God speak, they're like, I don't know if I like that. I kinda like my sin. I kinda like doing this. I don't really know if I believe that. I don't know if it really means that. As the people in the church, The demons who oppose God, who hate God, who do not want to worship God, when the word of God comes out of his mouth, they respond immediately. They they are done. Isn't that interesting? That James says that demons believe and tremble. And here's what I think we need a little bit of in the church of America. We need a little bit more reverence for Jesus. We need a little bit more respect and awe for when he speaks what we do. I, th- I think we lack that. I think we see Jesus, is my, he's, my, he's my brother. from another mother, right? That's what, that's what, and you know what? He is your brother. He is. He is, and he does love you. But he is also the one that every knee bows, every tongue confesses that he is Lord. He is the one where John, who knows him a lot better than you, gets on his face and is afraid like a dead man in front of Jesus. And so when he speaks, and it's not me. Look, if you don't like what I say, it doesn't bother me. Go to him. I'm just trying to tell you what he says. And I think that we as a church need to hear that and respond and say, I want this, but my Lord says this. And since he is God, I'm going to follow. We need more of that in His church because he has defeated our enemies. He is the mighty one of Israel. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords, right? So why is he better? He brings death to life. Value to the devalued, sight to the blind, and he defeated our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. The original is usually better, but not with Jesus. He is better. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of who your son is and what he has done for us. And a lot of this is new, I know, not new, Father, it's it's just a reminder, but I, I think some of us need to be reminded not run back into our death and our blindness. I think some of us need to be reminded that you value all of us, that you love us. And I think we need to be reminded that you are God and we are not. That you are the bridegroom, that we are the bride. And that you've purchased us with your blood. You gave everything for us. And that you've created us for good works that we might walk in them. So wherever we are, Lord, in this in this room, whatever truth needs to be uh, heard in our hearts. I pray that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear um, of your goodness towards us in Christ. I pray it for his name's sake. Amen.